Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being here. I'm glad to be back after we had to miss a time uh, together due to some inclement weather, due to a very unusual winter storm that we had in our area. Lots of fun to be had for many of us. I know it was a hard, a lot of hard work for a lot of others, but certainly we are glad to be back with you uh, together at First Baptist. We're continuing our look at the scriptures. You may remember that we started a series, what's going to be a brief series, on the Bible itself and how God has given us the Bible. And today's focus is going to be on the reliability of the scriptures, why we can trust it. And for those of you who like cars, when you're asked to think of reliable vehicles, several several of you will no doubt have stories of cars that you've driven until the wheels have fallen off, even if they lack some of the flashy technology gadgets and gizmos of modern vehicles. We'll hear names like Toyota and Honda will be ones that come up with models like Corolla, Tacoma, or Civic and Accord. Chevy Suburban is well known for its reliability, at least by some metrics, and the 1990 Honda Civic frequently tops the list of trustworthy rides. But one vehicle has earned the record for the most reliable car, the 1966 Volvo P1800. On March 27, 2004, a man by the name of Irv Gordon drove his 1966 Volvo into Times Square, New York, as he attended Volvo Cars of North America's 75th anniversary party at their Times Square studios on 44th and Broadway. And when he did, he crossed the 2 million mile mark on his vehicle. By the age of 77, Gordon had clocked in 3.2 million miles on his odometer, easily holding the record for the most miles driven in a single vehicle and establishing this Volvo as the world's most reliable car. Gordon was a retired science teacher, and he shared some interesting facts about his travels. To keep the car going over all of this time, he had used 107,400 gallons of gasoline, 3,300 quarts of motor oil, 829 oil filters, 464 spark plugs, 156 tires, in 29 sets of brake pads. We desire to have and to hold on to things that are reliable, things that we can trust. As a follower of Christ, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and it's reliable in all its teachings, but we can believe this not only because it is good, but because it is demonstrable and true. And so today we're going to look at some of the reasons why the Bible is reliable. I would direct your attention to a letter in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament, actually, a letter by the Apostle Peter, his second letter that bears his name, Second Peter. We're going to be looking in verse 1 and looking at verses 16 through 21. So here we go, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp, 
shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In this scripture, the Apostle Peter makes it abundantly clear that the message he and the other apostles in the church is sharing is not a message concocted by clever imaginations, but these are events that, have, that they have witnessed and they believed because of the glorious revelation of God. Peter insisted, rightly so, that this message was no myth. It was history seen by eyewitnesses, and there was life, eternity transforming power. The apostles and writers of the New Testament have been checked over and over again countless times for centuries, and what they have recorded for us has been found truthful time and time again. And briefly, I want to take a little side note here and talk about the word faith. As Christians, we use the word faith often and for good reason, but I want to make a distinction between the way that, that we use the word and the way that it is used today. Because the way that the word faith is used in the common vernacular is not the biblical usage of the word faith. Contemporary uses of the word faith at best are used as a word for confidence in something, which can be appropriate. However, many people use it as sort of a blind faith. They use the word faith as a blind sort of faith. They hope something to be true just because they hope it is true. On the contrary, the biblical definition of faith is belief that is met with revelation, with reason, with evidence, with eyewitness accounts, with God's acts throughout history and practical relevance to our life experiences, among other things. We don't have to wish Christianity to be true, but we can come to understand and have the conviction that it is true. And on this, our faith is built. Peter interestingly references eyewitnesses of his majesty. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts and some of the stories, you might ask, well, when did Peter witness the majesty of Jesus? There were many occasions, no doubt, but probably the one that is sticking out in Peter's mind at this point is the transfiguration of Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we know this because Peter quotes here what God the Father said to Jesus at the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, Jesus was transformed in glory before the apostles, not merely changed in outward appearance. But the effect was striking. Jesus became so bright in appearance that it was hard to look at him. He shined like the sun. And the words from heaven clearly put Jesus as God's supreme revelation above the law and above the prophets, that Jesus was not merely another or even a better lawgiver or prophet. Jesus was and is the beloved Son of God. Now, Peter's experience at the Transfiguration was amazing, but the testimony of God's word about Jesus was even more certain than Peter's personal experience. The fulfillment of the prophetic word confirmed is a certain reliable testimony of the truth of the scriptures. And Peter tells us that we would do well to heed to the scriptures. In other words, do well to listen to what is said and submit to it. Peter completes this section 
giving us some principles for the assurance of what has been revealed in Scripture. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any prophet interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy never came by the will of man. We discussed this some when last we were together about how all Scripture has been God-breathed, these men that were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, this ancient Greek word moved has the sense of being carried along like a ship, being carried along by the wind or a current. The same word is used of a ship in the book of Acts as, as the ship was being moved along by God, providentially saving Paul. It's as if the writers of Scripture raised themselves, if you will, and with God and the Holy Spirit carried them along in the direction that he wished. And the last time we were together, we discussed just these things. We discussed God's revelation. God has chosen to speak to humanity for many centuries through the written word that has been preserved in the Bible. God did this by inspiring the biblical authors to record his divine truth across many books, letters, documents, and accounts that we now call the Bible. There is a dual authorship to the Bible written by both God and by man, the dual authorship. Not merely inspired by God, though certainly it is that, but God breathed. The people God used to record his word certainly maintained their style, their vocabulary, their life experiences. All of this is intertwined with the writing of the Bible. But rest assured that when you open this precious book, and read its word, you are reading the very words of God. So when we wonder, has God spoken? The answer is yes, and he has done so primarily through the Bible. Now, can God speak and reveal himself in other ways? Absolutely, of course he can. But the prime way is through the Bible. And if I were to choose between trying to get to know God through guesswork and mysticism, Verses 66 books that record and reveal his character, attributes, and acts throughout redemptive history, I most certainly will choose the 66 books. The Bible itself is such an act of grace and love that God has given us. But alas, even so, it must be reliable. And once again, this is the focus of the message, the reliability of the Bible. And I provided some initial caution last time, and I want to provide that again, that this message is more informational than inspirational. I would venture to say very confidently that all of us here have great respect for the Bible. We believe in its authenticity. We recognize it as a precious guidebook that God has given us for life, and we believe it is reliable. However, not everyone does. Since we're called to be equipped to give an answer for the hope that we have, I think it's important for us to have a solid knowledge about what we believe and why we believe it. So I hope that these messages serve not only to strengthen our confidence and convictions, but it equips us to provide answers to our family, friends, co-workers, fellow students, and others who may not be ready to accept the Bible as the Word of God like we do. And so first, let's look at the Old Testament. How did we get the Old Testament? As Christians, we call these first 39 books 
the Old Testament because it contains covenants and promises that were made to the Jewish people that have now been fulfilled and superseded by the coming of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the establishment of the church age. And so up until this designation of Old Testament, it was known as the Hebrew Bible, and it still is by Jews today. The Hebrew Bible is known among the Jews as the Tanakh. This is an acronym of some Hebrew words. It's derived from the names of its three divisions, the Torah, which means the instruction or the law, also called the Pentateuch, the Nevium, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, or the writings. And so this process of how we got the 39 books of the Old Testament is, once again, a testament to God's sovereignty, the complete body of Scripture that we have in both the Old and New Testament that we'll talk about in, the mo in a moment is known as the canon, the canon, C-A-N-O-N. Now, certainly not the canon that you load a large metal ball into, light a fuse with some gunpowder, and it explodes, but this is something different. The word canon here uh, means rule. It's the measuring rod, if you will, and it's by it's how all other content is to be judged and measured. And the process by which we have these sacred texts is called canonization. Now, there's no reason to worry about these words. No one's going to be quizzed on them, but sometimes it can be helpful to have the vocabulary. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may recall that the first five books were written by Moses. Now, based on other references in the Hebrew Bible, the writings of Moses were immediately accepted as divine words, as authoritative words from God, meaning that these people recognized that these writings were not just the words of Moses, but the word of God given to Moses that was now being shared with the people. And over time, these writings of the Old Testament came from other of God's prophets were added, some kings, and several other people. All in all, the Old Testament was written over a period of around 1,000 years. The oldest book in the Old Testament is believed to be Job, and the most recent is Malachi. And so the canon, the closed scripture of the Old Testament, began once the first book was completed and was considered then closed by the Jews around the 4th century B.C., and this lines up with what we commonly refer to as the silent years or the quiet years, the 400 years between the writing of Malachi and the coming of Jesus. Malachi being the last book that you have in front of you in your Bible in the Old Testament. And then, of course, what we see with the writings of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus that our gospel writers record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, as far as how these copies were preserved, there were, as you know, no copy machines back then. So for many ages, many centuries, scribes were employed to make copies of scriptures. And Hebrew scribes, Jewish scribes, are famous and renowned for their meticulous attention to detail when copying the Hebrew scriptures. And the most famous group of these were known as the Masorites. They had obsessive attention to detail when making copies of the biblical texts. They would copy, check, and double-check their work, and even count the number of letters in each copy to ensure that they were the same from the original to the new. They would rigorously even clean themselves 
physically clean themselves to avoid any dirt or oils getting on the text, and they worked to free themselves of distractions so that they could focus entirely on the work that they were doing. Now, a common objection to these documents is that they were changed or altered over time. And rest assured, while we can't give every example here, this has been solidly disproven. One of the greatest discoveries of modern times in archaeology is that of the famed Dead Sea Scrolls. A brief part of the story goes like this. In 1947, a shepherd boy was pursuing a goat that had gotten away from the flock from a flock near some caves. He tossed a rock into one of the caves to spook the goat, and when the rock landed, he heard the cracking of pottery rather than a rock just landing on other rock. This shepherd went into the cave and inadvertently made one of the greatest discoveries in archaeological history. Over the next 10 years, 11 caves were excavated and discovered to contain tens of thousands of scrolls of ancient Jewish or Hebrew texts. And contrary to sometimes some sensational beliefs, none of these documents were never before seen. There were other copies that were in possession. There were copies of every Old Testament book that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls except for Esther. But the biggest discovery was the confirmation of the reliability of the transmission of these texts. You see, these copies that had now been found in the Dead Sea Scrolls were around a thousand years older than any of the other documents that were available in 1947. And as they were carefully unearthed and read, many folks expected that these much older documents, these much older copies of the scriptures, would differ dramatically from the modern Hebrew Bible. But much to the confirmation of believers and to the dismay of skeptics, there were minimal differences, and the differences that there were had logical explanations. One of the most notable examples of the consistency and preservation of Scripture was that of the prophet Isaiah. There was a complete scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and you've probably played a game called Telephone. Perhaps when you were school-aged, one person at one end of the room starts a rumor and then it's whispered from ear to ear to ear until it makes its way across the room to the very last person. And by that time, the original statement is often very different than what was originally said. But yet here, a thousand years had passed and there was not one alteration between the oldest copy of, of the prophet Isaiah and the one that we have in our Bibles today. Once again, when you study ancient documents, this is unprecedented in terms of the preservation of these texts. And so now you think, well, what about the New Testament? Well, first, let's talk about manuscripts. Manuscripts just is the fancy word that we have for copies of the New Testament or the Old Testament. Now, we've not yet discovered any of the original manuscripts that were penned by the original writers of the New Testament. So, in other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, we don't have any of the original manuscripts that their hands touched with their pens as they wrote it. Now, this isn't a problem. Some people want to kind of present this as a, as a challenge, as a problem. It's not one, as we'll see, but we have to be honest about that. It's to be expected. 
the original and many other manuscripts were written on papyrus, which is a water plant and later parchment or untamed animal skins. And it was written with ink that was made of soot, gum, and water. And over time, these things naturally deteriorate. You probably know this from even some books that you have, maybe some very old photographs that begin to kind of yellow and become more brittle and difficult to handle. Everyone knew that this happened, so many, many copies were made. And we know that we have the authentic words of the originals for three interrelated reasons. The number of copies available, the dates of when these copies were produced, and the agreement between these copies. So scholars take these copies and they compare them with one another to look for differences. And simply put, if there are large discrepancies between the copies, the less authentic and reliable they are believed to be. If there are many copies in existence that are agreeable, then they're more reliable. They're deemed more reliable. So looking at the reliability of the scriptures, remember I said that this message was a little different. So let's put on our historical glasses for just a moment and view the New Testament as just a work of ancient Greek literature, of ancient literature, and compare it to some other classical Greek works. Now, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but if I said raise your hand, if you've heard of some of the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, most of you would stick your hand up. You don't have to know about them, but most of you have at least heard of them. And you've also heard of their influence on culture. Their influence on thought and learning and all of these things are rarely seriously disputed, nor are the authenticity of their writings. Let me give you a couple of examples here. For Plato's writings, the time span between the original writings of Plato and the copies that we have is 1,200 years and we have seven copies. For Aristotle, the span of time between the original and the copies is 1,400 years, and we have 49 copies. The accounts of Julius Caesar, the Gallic Wars, and other related writings, there's a span of 1,000 years between the original and the copies, and we have 10 copies available. Now, no contemporary scholar or a person with half a wit about them denies that Julius Caesar existed or accomplished tremendous feats for the Romans, and they don't question the validity of the content of the copies. No one is burning down the history department at the University of Tennessee because these resources are being used. So now let's take the New Testament. The New Testament was written shortly after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the copies of Paul's letters and the Gospels began to circulate through the early churches and Christian communities. Now, it's been concluded that the entire New Testament, all 27 documents, were completed within 70 years of the events that they record. So between the original copies written by Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, between the original copies of the New Testament and the oldest copies we have, there are less than 100 years. There's a fragment of John's Gospel that's just 29 years from the original, and there are 5,600 86 Greek manuscripts in existence today, and more are being discovered. And that's just the Greek. There are thousands of more in Latin, Coptic, and others. For a fun visual comparison, if you took all of the copies of the works of ancient Greek literature of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Tacitus, Caesar, and others, and you kind of 
put these scrolls into uh, sizes of regular sheets of paper and you stacked them, every single copy, even in other languages, and you stacked them up, all of the copies would be about four feet high. Now, if you did the same thing with the New Testament, with the documents of the New Testament, and you stacked them up, it would be the height of four and a half Empire State Buildings. Now, on a practical level, these are just whimsical statistics. But I'm not saying this to be cute or clever. But when a person denies the authenticity of the contents of the New Testament, in order to be intellectually consistent, they would have to throw out all other works of ancient Greek literature. But now some will say, well, wait, aren't there some differences in the copies of the New Testament? So let's take a look at this. So among all the authentic copies that we have in the New Testament manuscripts, whether it's a scholar who is sympathetic to the content of the Bible or scholars who are not, they all are in agreement that between all of the copies that the accuracy is greater than 99%. In other words, all the copies agree at, at more than 99%. A man by the name of Bruce Metzger, he was a professor at Princeton, one of the most well-known biblical scholars, said that the wealth of the New Testament manuscripts is an embarrassment of material and confirms that the variations between all the copies to be less than 1%. Now, some of you are probably like me, and there's a little speck in your brain asking, okay, well, what's the 1% difference? If you look at all of these copies, you might acknowledge, I realize that's small, but what is the 1% difference? What's the variance? Well, let's take a look. Granted, it's a different language, but the English equivalent here would be something like the spellings of a name. So these are some of the differences. So, for instance, spelling John as J-O-H-N or J-O-N. So spelling John without the H or perhaps Kathy with a C rather than a K. Or the difference between saying N orange or A orange. Grammatically, one is preferable, but we still understand what's being communicated. And these last two that I'm going to mention are the biggest. You may have noticed in your Bibles a note after some words or statements or some brackets around a small section of verses that will say that this section is not in the earliest manuscripts. So I'm going to give you these two most significant ones. So in the last chapter of Mark, if you were looking in your Bible, chapter 16, the earliest manuscripts have Mark's gospel ending at verse 8. This is the discovery of the empty tomb by the women, and they're very afraid, and the story ends very quickly into Mark 16 at verse 8. Now, there's nothing theologically wrong with what follows uh, after verse 8, but it seems sort of awkward and out of place, and the earliest manuscripts do not have it. Chances are your Bible has a note for Mark 16, 9 through 20, indicating this observation. The other one is a brief story that begins at the end of John 7 and concludes at the beginning of John chapter 8. And this is the story of the woman of a woman who is caught in adultery where Jesus makes the well-known statement, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. It's a beautiful story. It sounds like something Jesus would do. It's very likely authentic, but we have to be honest that it isn't included in the earliest manuscripts. Now, why go over this? Because you'll have some people make the bold assertion that there are major differences between biblical texts. 
And what I have just shared with you in around two and a half minutes, they are the most significant ones, the most significant ones. And you can see that it affects nothing about what we believe about Jesus, the early church, the fundamentals of Christianity. Nothing is added. Nothing goes away. And another nugget regarding the uh, looking at ancient writing is the time span between the original events and the copies that record them. The longer the span, the more likely it leads to legendary development. But once again, the entire New Testament was completed before the close of the first century, less than 70 years after the event. There's a section in Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians 15, a creed that he mentions that comes less than five years after the resurrection. If these events that have been recorded were not recorded accurately, there would have been plenty of people around to say, that's not right, that didn't happen. In fact, Jewish authorities and the Romans would have loved for this to have been the case. They had a vested interest in debunking the story of Christ, but they couldn't do it. And so the main tests of the authenticity of these New Testament scriptures were apostolic authority, the acceptance and use of these texts by, as scripture in the early church, and certainly we understand that God had a hand in the acceptance and preservation of these scriptures. Apostolic authority is simply that these writings were verifiably written by a person that had been with Jesus during his life and had been with him post-resurrection, uh, like the apostles, that they had had an authentic and trustworthy encounter with the risen Lord, like the apostle Paul did, and that they had access to eyewitnesses, sources, and interviews of people who encountered Jesus like the Gentile Luke did. So very early, the writings that we have in the New Testament were being circulated through the early church and accepted as Scripture. And I'm confident in saying that a person, of course, still reserves the right to disbelieve the contents of the Bible, but they must do so on a personal or moral level, not on the basis that its contents can be deemed unreliable. So I want to close this with a couple of brief thoughts and this. Why does this matter? Is there a bridge to use this to believe, to use this information to believe? People are very skeptical. Many are. For folks that have grown up in an orthodox Christian environment, viewing the Bible as a guidebook for life is common and appropriate and reverent. But for many who are new to the Christian faith or for those who we are prayerfully trying to reach and to share the gospel with, Following the teaching of an ancient book may seem odd until we can explain it. Understanding some basics about how the Bible was given to us over the years only heightens the miracle. Because, friends, may I tell you that young people, our children, our grandchildren, will often go to some universities or they'll witness someone on social media or a TikTok video or something of the like, a person that's highly convincing, telling us that the Bible isn't reliable, that it's been altered greatly over time, that it contains information that is irrelevant to our world. And I hope that I don't sound snarky here, but I see this happen all the time, and we must be equipped to gently answer these concerns. If you traced the earliest books of the Bible to the last book penned, you would cover a time of about 1,500 years. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors of remarkably different backgrounds, fishermen, kings, warriors, shepherds, doctors, prime ministers, prophets, and even regular Joes like you and me. The Bible was written on three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa, in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Most of the authors never knew one another and were separated by centuries of time. 
but the Bible we possess has an amazing story that flawlessly connects from the opening statements of Genesis to the closing words of Revelation, and a golden thread that weaves all the way through is the person of Jesus Christ. For me as a believer, the only possible explanation is the hand of God. For someone we are praying for, conversing with, working with, going to school with, whatever it may be, this may open a door to deeper conversations that will one day lead them to Jesus Christ. Again, this establishes the reliability of what God has given us. We can be in prayer with God for opportunities to reach people and to ask him to go before us to open these doors and create ripe environments for these conversations. Peter, as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote these inspired words that in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. And then finally, for the believer, I believe that inside of us, it should cause us to bubble up with gratitude, thanksgiving, and worship. The real history of where the Bible came from is wonderful. If you own a Bible today, you are in a tiny percentage of Christians throughout history to hold the full scriptures in your hands. For most of the history of the church, if you wanted to have your own copy of the scriptures, you hand copied it, but most people were not literate, so they couldn't do it. This almost never happened. The writing material alone is estimated to have cost $9,000. Today, we have great access, and I believe that this is worth thanking God for. Because outside of a reader in the church, reading the words of God in the church, in olden times, people did not have access. And yet Christians would come and sit for long periods of time just to be read to, just to listen to the words of God from the Bible. Early church history reveals the story of two subdeacons in the May of 303, who were arrested by the Roman Empire. 303 to 313 AD was the most intense persecution of the Christian church in the Roman Empire. And these two subdeacons were arrested and were asked to turn over the scriptures. And they revealed that they didn't have the scriptures, that only the readers have the scriptures, and they would not reveal the names and the locations of the readers who had them. So they were killed, martyred, because they would not reveal the location of these people. We know nothing about them except this story. History does not record their names, but we have what we have because of the sacrifice and the work of brave Christians who we will only meet and get to know in eternity. For me, gratitude toward a great God is the only response. And so friends, much more could be covered and said on the reliability of the Bible, and I encourage you to look for yourselves, but we can have full confidence that when we place the word of God in our hands and in the hands of others, we are giving them the word of God, the truth. And Isaiah recorded the words of God in his ancient book. God said, so shall my word go out from my mouth, and it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, Psalm 119 is the longest single chapter in the Bible, the Old Testament, and it's wholly devoted to describing the beauty and the value of your word. In the middle of it, it is written, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. 
Thank you, God, for the, for the faithful throughout history who were obedient to you in preserving your word. Thank you that we are not left to wallow in wonder and darkness and mystery, but we have your word recorded for us in this precious book. Thank you for Jesus, who is the supreme revelation from God and the author and finisher of our faith. It's in his name we pray and give thanks and all the glory. Amen.